before we begin this morning, let's go to the word in pr- let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, open your word to us this morning. Give us eyes to see you. Ears to hear you. And a love for you that we might follow you carrying our crosses. dying to our old selves. Walking in the newness of life. Father, we pray for those who are hurting among us. We pray for Cynthia Jaqua. We pray for Jonathan Pence. We pray for Claire Reddit. Lord, heal her eyes. We pray for Dr. Lynch, for Joan Raspberry, for Robert Garner's mother. Lord, so many in the scriptures came to you and you healed them by the word of your power. We ask for that healing this morning. Father, we pray for your your blessing upon our church. We pray that you might bring us a new youth director who loves your word and who will love our students, who will teach them and disciple them, who will come alongside them and weep with them and encourage them Father, we pray for the community in which you have placed us. Lord, may Fayette County be a county that has come to a revival because they have fallen in love with your word, because they've fallen in love with Jesus. We pray for the churches in this county that faithfully preach your gospel, that administer the sacraments. Lord, bless them. May they be called to righteousness this morning and given the hope of the gospel. Father, we thank you for our denomination and our presbytery meeting this past week. Lord, may all the churches in Covenant Presbytery be blessed from the work that happened. May your church stand united. May there be peace and harmony. Father, we pray for Austin Brash, the RUF minister at Old Miss. Lord, bless his first year there. May he preach the word to those college students. May they come to 
the repentance of their sins and maybe for the first time might come to a saving faith in the work and person of Jesus. Father, we pray for our president and for our vice president, for our representatives and senators. Lord, you have placed them over us. May they be faithful to your word. May you place godly men and women around them, giving them wisdom. May they love justice and mercy. Father, we pray for our missionaries, Mark and Liz Scheibe. We pray for their ministry. We pray for their children. We pray for their marriage. Lord, might you bless them in a new way this morning. Father, bring peace. Bring comfort. Lord, come quickly. And we pray, as you taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The Puritan John Flavel, when preaching on John 19, said this, You have now heard the last words of dying Jesus, commending his spirit into his Father's hands, and now the life of the world hangs dead on a tree. The light of the world, for a time, muffled up in a dismal cloud. The sun of righteousness set in the region of the shadow of death. The Lord is dead. And he that wears the keys of the grave at his girdle is now himself to be locked up in the grave. This is where we are in the story, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God was slain. The God-man is dead. And you might expect a type of funeral that would be fitting for kings. But that is not what we see here. At the Arlington Memorial, the service is composited of many different things. The family meets at the front gates. The family is given a memorial service. They have a casket of the deceased and is placed on a cassian, a horse-drawn carriage that takes the body to the gravesite. A procession including a full band, a firing party, and the family walk to the gravesite. All military members in uniform always salute the casket as it's being moved. All non-military members are to place their hands over their hearts. 
There's an officer in charge. He oversees the casket moving. He oversees it being placed inside its grave. But yet, when they, receive, when they arrive at the gravesite, he steps aside for a chaplain or a minister to present a message. And once that minister is finished, he steps aside and the official in charge presents arms, initiating a rifle volley. And then the bugler plays taps. The American flag is folded and passed to the officer, and the officer presents it to the next of kin. Condolences are given, and the body is lowered into the ground. This is how we treat someone who has served in our military when they are being buried in Arlington Memorial. This is not the type of burial we see for Jesus, our King. Jesus was buried by two disciples. Two men who were probably part of the Sanhedrin. Which means that they had converted from what they believed and they had truly seen Jesus for who he really was. Joseph of Arimathea. Someone who we don't know very much about. Yet all four Gospels mention his name as the one who took Jesus' body and put him in the tomb. The other was Nicodemus. And for the third time in John's Gospel, we hear of his name. We first hear of him in John chapter 3. When he, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus in the dark of night and asked him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that that world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who desires wicked things, the light and hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is Nicodemus coming to the light. He's coming to Jesus. Yet what we know about Jesus' life, we know that he lived in poverty. For we are told at the very beginning of his life that when his parents came to offer a sacrifice, they offered two turtle doves, which was the offering of someone who couldn't afford a lamb. But to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, these two men came forward, carried Jesus' body, and placed him in a brand new tomb. 
which is only available for the rich. And they made his grave, Isaiah said, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Yet another confirmation of Jesus as God's suffering servant. Typically, when the Romans executed somebody, their body was given to the next of kin so that they could properly receive a burial. Except, however, for those who were crucified. Those who were crucified were actually left hanging on the tree. And it was very well known that many times someone who was crucified was actually crucified where their crime was committed to deter the people. Jesus' body should have been left to rot on the cross. But his two disciples come and take down his body so that his body would not see corruption as David says in Psalm 16. And they prepare him a place in the tomb. And they bring 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. The Jews didn't embalm their dead. They wrapped them in a shroud and placed herbs and spices around them. They did this to hide the stents of putrefaction. Because after the body would decompose, a Jew would go into the tomb, take its remains, and place it in a box called an ossuary. So why does John give us all these details? Why does John repeatedly tell us that Jesus is dead? He's done this four times. The Roman soldiers did not break his legs because Jesus was already dead. The Roman soldiers pierced his side because if someone was alive and they were pierced into his heart, they would be dead. Joseph asked for his body. And Pilate would only give up Jesus' body if he knew he was already dead. And then they wrapped him in linen cloths and placed him in a tomb. Something that we are quite removed from in the 21st century is being near dead people. When our relatives dies, we call someone and they come and take the body and prepare it for burial. It's very often the case that once a loved one dies, we don't ever see them again until the funeral, if it's an open casket. We have completely removed ourselves from performing and carrying out the care of our loved ones once they are dead. But in the first century, this isn't the case. Families took their dead bodies and prepared them. They had to carry them. And usually they put them in a tomb with other dead bodies. I say all of this because there are many critics of Christianity who still claim that Jesus really didn't die. This is what the Gnostics say. This is what the Docetists say, that Jesus only had some form of a spiritual body, that he wasn't fully human. 
And then there are the rationalists, those who do not believe in any type of supernatural power of God that are claimed in the scriptures and who believe that Jesus' death and resurrection were merely a spiritual metaphor for us overcoming the bad side and coming to the good side. But John writes here very explicitly, their culture knew what a dead person was. Jesus was dead, crucified, died, and was buried, as the creed reads. And then this is what John says to solidify this witness account. Look at me at verse 35. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you might believe. The one who claimed to be the king, the one who claimed to be the fulfillment of God's law, the one who claimed to be light and life in himself is dead. This is what John is trying to get across. Jesus is dead. He was placed in the tomb, and they left him there. This is why they put the spices on him. They thought he was dead. Dead, dead. Truly dead. And this is what Holy Saturday should feel like. Holy Saturday is the Saturday of Holy Week. Typically, there's a Monday, Thursday, the celebration of the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, where he washes his disciples' feet, representing to them the cleansing he's about to perform on the cross. And then there's Good Friday. His arrest, his trial, his flogging, his crucifixion, and his death. And this morning we've come to Holy Saturday. They place Jesus in the tomb and they leave the body of a dead person there. And we might have in our hearts the same type of questions they had for themselves that day. Was he truly who he said he claimed to be? Was he going to truly accomplish the work that he said he was going to accomplish. Was this truly the Son of God? But this is the point. This was the point. Of all of Jesus' life, this is the point. That in his prophetic in his priestly and his kingly activities, all of it was to go to the cross. His death is the fulfillment of his life. Jesus came to die. And he himself was clearly conscious of that. His first public appearance in the Gospel of Luke Jesus applied the prophecy concerning the suffering servant of the Lord to himself and was there, therefore 
perfectly aware of the fact that he was going to be the lamb that was slaughtered for the people. He, as John revealed, is the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. In John 3, as I've just read, he was to be like the serpent lifted up in the desert, which, John, which Jesus also said in John 12. He also said that he was the grain of wheat that must go into the ground and die, therefore to bring life to others. He said of himself, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it up. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he reveals that he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill the law and the prophets and the will of his Father. In John chapter 10, he says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus claims that he is the greater sign of God's work for his people. He is a better Jonah that will go into the heart of the great fish and on the third day come out in resurrection power. And what did Jonah do after he came out of that great fish? He went and proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles in Nineveh. And Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. It is at Peter's confession when he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus begins to tell his disciples, I have come to go to the cross. Three times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each, and three times, Jesus says he is going to die for his people. And then after his resurrection, in Luke 24, the angel says, He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day he will rise. Before Jesus died. Before Jesus died. Listen to this. This is what he tells his disciples. Take up your cross and follow me. Before the trial, before his crucifixion, he has already told his disciples, if you are going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, designates that he himself is going to die for the redemption of of the people that God the Father has given him. And this is the heart of the apostolic preaching. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, I deliver to you the first importance of what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. As we read in our assurance of pardon, for while we were still sinners... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ gave his life for us that we might become a fragrant offering 
to his father. In Colossians 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, and God made us alive in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us in his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Peter tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The death on a cross. This is the gospel. This is the story of God's great redeeming love for his people. Christ died to remove our sin. And this isn't simply a doctrine alone. This isn't just some great truth that we must say, yes, this is right. If this is true, this changes everything. For we were bought with a price to become bondservants of the Holy One. He who gave himself for us lawless people, he did to purify us and to make us zealous for good works, is what, is what Titus says in chapter 2. It is God himself who has acted who has intervened in history, he opens the way for redemption through the blood and the power of Jesus Christ. He brings men into redemption and calls us to walk in newness of life. God did not forget us. God saw us in our state, a state of rebellion, a state of wondering, a state of rejection, and God did not leave us there. He came to us and rescued us and redeemed us through Christ. The whole work of redemption is God and God alone who manifests himself as the seeking and calling one, as the speaking and acting one. The whole work of redemption begins and it ends in the love of the Father. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul tells us we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith to show how God's righteousness, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He put Jesus forth as a sacrifice for us. Sacrifices existed 
from the oldest times in the Old Testament. We see sacrifices being offered from Cain and Abel, from Noah. And then God establishes his people, Israel, to come to him with sacrifices. But what were the sacrifices for? To purify them. The sacrifice was placed in their spot that they deserved to die for their sins. But God in his loving mercy accepted a sacrifice in their stead. But do you know what he truly desired? Do you know what he truly wanted from his people? Obedience. Obedience was far better than any sacrifice. For the Lord desires mercy and the knowledge of him to be known in all the world. The sacrifices were given so that Israel could stay in fellowship with their God, so that they could be his people. And the blood of bulls and goats were offered up. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, they were never able to take away sin. God forgave their sins, but it wasn't until the death of Jesus that God forgave and made atonement for their sins. He forgave the Old Testament believers on the basis, on the, his perfect plan that Christ would come in history and die for his people in their place. It was as if every time Israel would come and offer a sacrifice, that God was writing an IOU to himself. Looking forward to that time where he would cash it in at the cross. And this is what Paul claims is the fullness of time. That in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Christ had to die for God to maintain his moral and ethical integrity, Christ had to die to settle the accounts for his people. For as John Murray states, the question is not really how much, so much how can man be just with God? The question that we have to ask ourselves is how can sinful man become just with God? Our sin, our sin necessitates the wrath of a holy God. Not the accumulation of sin, but every sin, every thought, every desire, a single word, a single act. And here's the bad news. It's stacked against us because we are already born in sin, polluted and unclean. And over and over, the biblical testimony tells us that a sacrifice is necessary for us to come into the presence of God, and that work has been completed in Jesus Christ upon the cross. It is Christ 
and only Christ that can make us right with God. And it's at the Christ's cross work that the Trinitarian plan of salvation is displayed for all to see. It's at the cross that the shared intention and accomplishment of the Father and Son and Spirit rendering redemption fully accomplished for the payment of our sin on the behalf of our good Savior. It was God who planned that at the cross we were ransomed. It was God who planned that at the cross our sinless Savior died in our place. It was at the cross that the holy, harmless, undefiled, and perfect Redeemer, who was in himself the love of God revealed for all mankind, satisfied God's holy justice and made us sons and daughters. Where we received adoption and reconciliation, and redemption. It is Jesus who is our only source of salvation. It is in Jesus that God reveals his redeeming love. For over and over we hear, right? Our culture reminds us, God is love. That's what they want. They want to be loved by God. But the love of God only comes in the true biblical sense when God's love is understood as being a holy love in perfect harmony with his justice. And this is how Jesus continually spoke of his great work. That it was to reveal the glory the Father. Over and over in John's gospel, this is what we hear, that he is going to display the glory of his Father by accomplishing the work that his Father gave him, and that's going to the cross for his people. Everything, everything that Jesus did was to reveal the glory of his Father. And throughout the Gospels, do you know how people responded to that? Well, there's multiple ways that people responded. Do you know how people properly responded? Over and over we were told, people stopped what they were doing. They looked at the work of Jesus, and they glorified God. This is a proper response to the work of Jesus upon the cross and going into that grave all by himself. Jesus Christ died to redeem you. He didn't go in there just exchanged for Barabbas. He exchanged his life for yours. God shows us his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But this Lord's Day, we are not only celebrating 
Holy Saturday. As we do every Sunday, we are celebrating the resurrection power of Jesus. Because it's the resurrection that we are able to say, O death, where is thy sting? God demands perfect obedience. And Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed. God demands perfect holiness. And it was Jesus who revealed the holiness of God. God calls all to covenant loyalty. And it was at the cross that Jesus opened the door and called all those to follow by faith, to covenant obedience. And this changes everything. This changes the way that we talk. This changes the way that we think. This changes the ways we parent. This changes the way we love our spouse. This changes the way that we are buried. And this changes the way that we worship. For we are called to faithfulness. Like Joseph and Nicodemus, we are called to come to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has accomplished everything that you need. It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, what a work you have accomplished for us in Christ. Father, give us strength to pick up our cross and to follow you. Father, be with us. May we run to the light. May we recoil to the darkness. And may we love as you have loved us. Amen. If you'll please stand.